Turn with me uh, to the book of Ephesians chapter 3. We want to look at the mystery of the church. And this morning, part 2. Now, the last time we, we were in Ephesians 3, we had gone through the first seven verses. And I want to kind of just reminisce quickly and go through those again and then finish the chapter. But as Paul was chosen by God to make known and to explain the mystery of the church. Interesting because the mystery of the church, even today, there are those that don't understand the mystery of the church, that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, that Jesus died on the cross to give us life, life eternal. And this born-again experience, there are so many that don't understand. The cross, there are so many that don't understand. The Bible says that uh, to some the cross is foolishness. And it was then, and you can still see it today. But this mystery of the church, how Jesus died for us to give us life, life eternal. Now, there are a lot of mysteries in Scripture that we struggle with. There are those that don't understand the mystery of salvation, the mystery of the grace of God, the mystery of the forgiveness of our sins, that his precious blood sanctifies us, sets us apart, washes us afresh and anew. And so Paul, as he speaks uh, concerning the church, the body of Christ, even that's a mystery. We think the church is the building itself. And yet the Bible teaches us that we, that you, uh, we are the body of Christ. And that Jesus died for us. We're the ecclesia. Uh, we're the called out ones. And so another mystery. And so Paul has just been bringing this forth so clearly. One of the things that I like to share in, in this born again experience or the regeneration the transformation that takes place in, in one's life. I love this scripture in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Paul tells us so clear. If any man, if any woman is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. All things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. What does it mean uh, to be a new creation? What does it mean to have a transformed life? Remember back in John chapter 3, uh, Jesus, in speaking to Nicodemus, that you must be born again. He didn't understand that. And so these mysteries that have been unveiled, these mysteries that have been exposed now uh, to us as we study the Word, as the Holy Spirit uh, speaks to us. Now, one of the things that I learned years ago, and I've shared it with you in time past, a mystery in the church is a previously hidden truth now divinely revealed through the, to us through the Holy Spirit. And I want you to think of that. Remember when you first heard of the rapture of the church. What does that mean? When you heard of the seven years of, of tribulation. That there's going to be seven sealed judgments. Uh, seven trumpet judgments. And seven bold judgments. And you know we didn't identify. We didn't understand. And so the scriptures speak of these mysteries. And so let's begin here in verses 1 through 7. Kind of just take it through quickly. We really developed it last time. But Paul begins here in verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ, Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you. I like that. Paul declares himself a prisoner of Christ. 
He acknowledges his call to minister to Gentiles, but he also tried desperately to minister to the Jews, to minister to this place of people that were dying, people that were not understanding the scripture. And Paul brought forth that position of the grace of God. But I want you to see something that Paul considered himself a prisoner of Christ, a slave by choice unto the Lord. Now, a lot of times uh, there's a hardship there. We don't understand this position of being called the slave of Christ. And yet I'm reminded that before I came uh, to saving grace, before you came to saving grace, we were a slave to the world. We were a slave to the appetites of the world. We were a slave to the sin nature. But because of who we are and our history of slavery, we don't like to equate that. Well, I don't want to be a slave to anybody. But yet look at the things that we were slaves to. Paul understood that. Paul was a slave to, to the law. And he comes to saving grace. Just imagine what took place in Paul's life there in Acts chapter 9, the Damascus Highway. And he comes to saving grace. And so now he speaks of this dispensation, this place of stewardship, this place of a responsibility uh, to that call. Now, as I'm looking at the letter, as Paul's writing to the church at Ephesus, what about our responsibility? What about our call? Maybe you'll never uh, preach behind of a pulpit. Maybe you'll never give a Bible study, but we're all called. As God saves you, sanctifies you, sets you apart. We have a stewardship or a responsibility to share with others. Because there's a dying and a perverse generation of people, even in our own families. And how we need to desperately see them come to saving grace, to receive this unmerited favor. We deserve judgment. They deserve judgment. But God pours out his grace. And so listen to Paul's heart now. He goes on into verse 3 and 4. How that by revelation, this is how Paul received this calling and this mystery of Christ. How that by revelation he made known to me the mystery as I have briefly already written to you. By which, we, by which he says, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. And so Paul's bringing this back to their remembrance. He was speaking from his, not his own wisdom. Or his own knowledge. But from a personal revelation. A teaching, instruction from the Lord. As the Holy Spirit gave Paul the message of hope. The mystery of who Christ was. That he is the Messiah. The anointed one. If you go back into Galatians in chapter 3. Paul had spent three years in Arabia. There in the desert as God spoke to him, as the Holy Spirit ministered to him, as Paul was taught the oracles of God. And all of a sudden, the Old Testament was coming to life to him. Not just the law, but now looking at the grace of God, the importance of the grace of God. And I think sometimes what we need to understand, that grace that was given then is still the same grace today. Unmerited favor. I deserve that judgment. Paul understood that. You're going to see as we continue. Look at verse 5 now. Which in other ages, now he's speaking about this mystery. Which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit and his holy apostles and the prophets. 
And so Paul goes on to explain this mystery. God did not reveal this mystery in previous generations. But now he has revealed by the Holy Spirit to the apostles and the prophets. But let me just share this this morning. This mystery was not just unveiled to Paul and to Peter and to James and to Jude and the rest of the men that we see in the New Testament. But what about us here this morning? The church, the body of Christ. The ecclesia, again, the called out ones, this stewardship, this responsibility that's been given to us. Don't be content with your salvation. Don't hoard that salvation. Now, you should desire to share with others. The Old Testament says that sheep are going to beget sheep. I don't know about you, but when I came to Saving Grace, I couldn't hold it back. I had to share with somebody. I worked with a group of people that we would go to the bar right after work, and so I knew them. And when I went back, I shared with them. Oh, you're going to get rejection. You know, you're going to get jeers. You're going you're to even be told to be quiet. But yet, how can you hold it back? And then what about your family members? To share this mystery of Christ. Paul was called to the Gentiles, but he took it to the Jews. When I was shared with my family, not all of them received it. But yet I still shared with them. You should not be content that you're the only one saved in your family. You should not be content you're the only one that's going to heaven in your family. What about the rest of them? And you start with your own Jerusalem. Notice verse 6, Paul goes on. That the Gentiles should be a fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And so Paul's speaking about this mystery, this mystery of salvation, this secret plan, he says. That the Gentiles have an equal share with the Jews. Was it just something for Jews alone? And yet in a whole, the Jewish community uh, refused it, rejected Christ. But the Gentiles have an equal share with the Jews and all the riches inherited by God's children. Both groups have believed the good news and both are part of the same body and enjoy together the promise of the blessings through Jesus Christ. I think it's such a blessing when you see a, a Jew that has come to know uh, salvation uh, through Christ. A Jew that is considered completed now. There's a lot of them. But yet, in a whole, many have rejected Christ. And so look at Paul's heart as he comes to verse 7, at the conclusion of this first part of Ephesians 3. And then Paul declares himself there a minister. And we fit the same category. He goes in verse 7, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power, the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul was made, was called as a minister. Now we look at Paul as one of the, the pillars of the church. We look at Paul as one of the giants of the New Testament, especially the epistles. He wrote the majority of them. And we sometimes have this tendency to place Paul on a pedestal. But church, I want you to see what he calls himself. Now, we understand the word minister, and you think right away, well, a preacher, a Bible teacher, etc. But the word minister here in the Greek is a, a diakonos. And it's a very in interesting translation. It means a servant. That's it, cut and dry. 
Paul says, I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and the word diakonos is one who serves tables, one that cleans tables, one that does the menial tasks. And I think sometimes we, we need to be very careful with titles. Oh, in time past, I've given titles out in, in this ministry, and, and then it turns around and it bites you. You have to be careful. I think we all need to keep that one title, and that is, I'm a minister of Christ. I'm a diakonos. I'm a slave of Christ by choice. And so this servanthood that Paul was called to bring forth the gift of the grace of God, it's a gift, church. It's not something we earn, but it's something that's been given. You must take the gift and run with it. Dispense that gift to as many as possible. And after Paul, uh, there in the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, he was never the same. I like when Paul was knocked down off of his animal. He realized and recognized that it was the power of God. The Bible says there was a light that shone round about him. But remember Paul's words, is that you, Lord? Recognize that it was the Lord. Now many believe, and I'm in agreement. That when Paul saw young Stephen die that first martyr's death of the New Testament. Remember they cast their coats before Paul. That solitarsis. He acknowledged that. That death of Stephen never left Paul. And so there in the road to Damascus is that you Lord. He recognized the power of God. Hmm. Be careful with titles again. Yes, there's pastors, there's elders, there's deacons, there's even bishops. We can take it further, those of us from Catholicism. You have your cardinals and, you know, then you have your popes and such. Uh, be careful with titles. We should all be considered servants of the Lord, a diakonos. One that waits on tables, one that cleans tables. And so Paul recognized that. And you're going to see that as we continue. Now we come to verses 8 through 13, and he speaks about the purpose of the mystery of the church. He says, to me, who am less than the least. Notice that Paul puts himself at the bottom of the bottom. Who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the, the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now again, we spoke of a diakonos, a servant. And we come here to the beginning of this second portion. And in verse 8, Paul recognized, and notice his heart here, as it describes himself. I am the least deserving Christian, yet I was chosen for this, to go to the Gentiles about the endless treasures available to them in Christ. Paul brought forth the salvation by grace through faith. We spoke of that back in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. It wasn't by the law, but it was by the grace of God. Imagine everything that Paul did as, you know, one that was called a Pharisee. In fact, he was considered a Pharisee of Pharisees. And all of a sudden, it's by the grace of God. He used to boast, on the eighth day, I was circumcised. Paul studied under the great teachers. Paul was learned, but yet he did not understand and know the grace of God. 
Not only was Paul called to minister to the Jews, and then when they rejected it, he took it to the Gentiles. But again, what about us? If you're taking notes in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, we're all familiar with this. Jesus gives his disciples the great commission. And he says, basically, go make disciples. The word disciples make students, make pupils, make learners of Christ. Teach them uh, God's word. And then I love what, what Jesus says here. He gives us the ordinance of baptism. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. There's a dangerous doctrine that's out there. It's called uh, the oneness movement. And it takes part of Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Uh, Baptize in Jesus' name only. Be careful with that. Now, I don't have a problem if somebody comes up and says, Would you baptize me in Jesus' name? But that they would believe in the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so here's Jesus' words, not Acts 2.38, but Jesus says, go make students now and then baptize them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But go back up to verse 8 again. Paul says, who am the less and the least of all the saints? Oh, I love that. If you're taking notes, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says, Jesus came to save sinners like me, like you. But then he clarifies, which I am the chief sinner. Don't you just appreciate that? Paul says, I'm the lowest of the lowest. And I like that because when I came to saving grace, I thought, hey, I'm the worst sinner. When you came to saving grace, you should have thought, hey, I'm the worst sinner. I think about Mary Magdalene, the woman that had seven demons that were cast out of her. Man, she considered herself the worst of sinners. And yet Paul recognized, listen, the grace of God. The grace of God. We are but dust, but God saves that dust, doesn't he? That's the beauty of grace. Look at verse 9, he continues, and, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery. So Paul was called to declare this mystery. The fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. Paul's declaring to them at the church at Ephesus, listen, I was called to teach this plan that God, the creator of all things, has kept secret from the beginning. They didn't understand it. Paul didn't understand it. In that time span, even the three days that he was in Damascus there in Ananias' house, I believe the Holy Spirit was speaking to him. But again, back in, you know, when Paul was in Arabia, there in Galatians 3, for three years, oh, what was the Spirit of the Lord sharing with him? What was God? What was Jesus himself there, I believe there could have been easily a revelation. What was Paul receiving? Such insight. All of a sudden now this mystery has been divinely revealed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice he says here, what is the fellowship? The word fellowship is the word koinonia. What is the communion uh, with God? What is the oneness with God? What is this identification with God now? All because of the cross. Now, we're all familiar with John chapter 3, 
verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Such a simple verse, but uh, have we taken it in? For God so loved the world that he gave his son for me. He gave his son for you. That Jesus was given for Paul the Apostle. I'm thinking of the picture here because back in Genesis chapter 22, remember when Abraham waited so long for his son. He thought so much that it was Ishmael, but it was to be Isaac, the son of the Spirit. And we know the story that Isaac, as a young lad, he could have been anywhere between a teen or even up into his early 20s. And God says, now take your son, your only son, up into the mountain and sacrifice him to me. The Bible tells us that, you know, Isaac was obedient to his father. The Bible says that Abraham took the knife, was ready to plunge it uh, into his son. And you know the story, an angel came and said, and he stopped him. He says, now God knows that you love him. But the picture there uh, uh, would be of Christ going to the cross. Those of you with children, would you give your child for anybody, I would not. And yet, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The mystery has been revealed by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit is my teacher. The Holy Spirit is your teacher. If you're taking notes back in John chapter 16, verses 13 through 15... The Holy Spirit's going to guide you. He's going to teach you. He's going to lead you into the path of righteousness, basically. The word that he's going to guide you there in the Greek, that he's, he will lead you to the way. And then Jesus say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man gets to the Father but through me. The Holy Spirit. <laughs> he's there to lead Paul the Apostle. To lead Peter, James, and John. And so many people think it was the apostolic time only. The Holy Spirit's still effective today. That same Holy Spirit that was poured out in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost is the same Holy Spirit that we have access to today. Oh, I need the Holy Spirit to lead me and to guide me into all truth. And so those mysteries begin to be unveiled. Those mysteries begin to come down. And I understand even lightly, I understand the grace of God. I don't fully grasp it, but the grace of God, unmerited favor. He goes on into verse 10, uh, to the intent now, uh, this grace of God that's been given, this mystery of salvation, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and the powers in heavenly places. God's intent, Paul is saying here. The word intent is God's purpose. His purpose to show his manifold wisdom or his much varied wisdom made known to the rulers and authorities and heavenly realm. They will see this when Jew and Gentile, because he's been speaking of that, that Jew and Gentile are joined together in his glorious church. The Bible says that God's no respecter of persons. Now, when Paul would go into a city, he would find a synagogue and he would go into it. Generally, he was rejected and then, you know, he was asked to leave the city, uh, sometimes not politely. 
Sometimes Paul was stoned, uh, left to dead. But Paul would still go to the Gentile or to the Jews first, and then the rejection, and then he would take it to the Gentiles. This mystery of salvation, though, that was given first to the Jew, and they rejected, and then given to the Gentiles. There in Romans chapter 11, Paul says that uh, the Gentiles become the grafted-in branch. Praise God that God has grafted us in. Salvation. Again, how do you grasp it? How do you understand it? The Bible says that angels in heaven, even the fallen angels, have no concept of salvation. And so he speaks of the principalities and the powers, even in the heavenly places. I'm reminded of a passage, if you're taking notes, in Luke chapter 15, verse 7 and 10, Jesus is teaching a parable, and he says this, that they rejoice in heaven when one person gets saved. And he speaks of angels there in verse 10. They rejoice. Hey, somebody got saved there at Calvary Chapel. The angels are looking at each other. Well, what does salvation mean? I don't know, but somebody got saved. That's basically what he's talking about. Now we're going to read in 1 Peter later, in chapter 1, that even the prophets, as they wrote of this salvation message, of the Messiah, which is Christ, they didn't understand it. They didn't understand the suffering Savior. But they wrote it as the Holy Spirit gave them unction. Look at verse 11 now. According to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This was God's plan. This is what Paul's saying. In verse 11, this was God's plan from all eternity. And it is, it has now been carried out through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now back in Genesis chapter 3, we know that man fell from the grace of God. Sin entered. God knew that was going to happen because he is the all-knowing God. And God had already made a provision because if you study Genesis 3, verse 15, he already begins to make a way of escape. And we know that Adam and Eve went out and they sowed fig leaves. But the first animal sacrifice, because the Bible says that God placed skins on them. In order to place skins on them, there had to be an animal sacrifice. And so the first blood sacrifice that takes place, God does this, church. You know that God knew us already back in Genesis chapter 3? That plan was already set in place even for us here this morning. God knew that I, I was a sinner. God knew that you were a sinner and that we needed to come uh, to saving grace. This is a mystery. What did God tell Jeremiah? Before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you, Jeremiah. And the mysteries of God. Look at verse 12 now. In whom? He says, we have boldness and access with confidence uh, through faith in him. Now, verse 12 here is a mouthful because, Paul says, of Jesus Christ, I have now this boldness. The word boldness here is translated better. I have this confidence in our faith, our trust, our assurance is in him, not in me, not in you, 
not in man. I have access. The word is admission. We can now come without fear of judgment into God's presence. I have 100% assurance that he has saved me. He has saved you. I know this because the Holy Spirit reveals it to you. And so those of us that maybe don't know this, then maybe you need to come to Christ. Maybe you haven't made that commitment. I was thinking of our B.C. days before Christ. I used to hope I would go to heaven. I used to wonder, well, am I going to make it? Maybe I'm saved, maybe I'm not. You see, I come out of Catholicism, so I was taught my water baptism is what's going to keep me. And then I made my communion, so, you know, I felt even greater there. And then eventually, about the age of 14, I made my confirmation. So, you know, I've, I'm doing the sacraments. But I still wondered, maybe I'm saved, maybe I'm not saved. And then if I died in my sins, I still had purgatory to fall upon. And so you play these games even in your own mind, in your own heart. And yet now, I have this assurance. You, you have this assurance. The mystery of salvation has been declared to you. The Bible says those that call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What does that take? What does that entail? It takes faith that it comes from our hearts. Now, yes, there are those that can make easily a, a lip service, but it must come from the heart. And so this place of salvation, I know now because I am born again, you are born again, and the Holy Spirit has shown me this. But think of these writers in the time past. Think of these angels again. They don't understand. Turn with me uh, to 1 Peter chapter 1. I want to just declare something that is so profound here. Again, we're looking at these mysteries that are so beautifully uh, unveiled. The cross now, that it is so meaningful. I know that it's a symbol of death. And I know that Christ died on that cross to give me life. But notice what Peter writes here. 1 Peter chapter 1, look at verse 10. He says, concerning this salvation, this mystery as we've been talking about it, the prophets who spoke of the the grace that was to come to you, searched intently, I like that, and with greatest care. He says, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted or prophesied the suffering of Christ and, and the glories that would follow. Think of Isaiah as he writes chapter 52 and he writes chapter 53 and he's speaking about the suffering Savior that he fully understand. Isaiah writes and he says that his body was so marred that he fully understand that Jesus would be unrecognizable. And then he concludes in verse 12 here. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. As they penned these prophecies. When they spoke of all the things that have now been told uh, to you by those who have preached the gospel to you. By the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels, as we spoke earlier, long to look into these things. Again, back in Luke chapter 15, verses 7, and especially verse 10. Angels didn't understand. 
They were puzzled. Hey, we're rejoicing. They got saved. Well, what does that mean? One angel says to the other angel, I don't know, but God said that they're saved now. Now, the angels had a free will because we know that a third of the angelic being followed Lucifer. And they became the fallen angels. But to understand, my Bible says that you cannot say that Jesus Christ is Lord without the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through you. Notice verse 13. Let's go back to our text. He says, therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. So Paul, you know, understood the church at Ephesus. And so here Paul encourages them with love. Church, don't faint, he's telling them. Don't become weary. Don't lose heart because of my trials. Paul's writing from a Roman prison. The ordeals that Paul faced, the ordeals that Paul suffered. And Paul says that if it's for you that I'm suffering so that you should feel honored and encouraged, praise God. Paul tells the church that this is but a light affliction, some of the pains that he went through. I'm reminded in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, it's called the faith chapter. It's called the the heroes of faith. The things that were suffered throughout the early history that we might have this word. The things that were suffered by Peter, James, John, the list goes on. Study the Reformation and you see some of the suffering, the pain, the agony. All of this for us? All of this for you, for me? Jesus suffered? We're going to suffer. In fact, that was a promise. And sometimes we think, well, the suffering is for Paul here. Peter, James, and John. Jude, even his suffering. And we think of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but all have suffered. Study the early church. There is a beautiful book. I'm sure some of you have read it at one time or another. It's called Fox's Book of Martyrs. I love that book. Kind of keeps you uh, in the edge. You're not alone when you go through little trials and tribulations and and sufferings and, and hardships. When you read about John Fox, he was born in 1516. He died in 1587. And he compiled these lectures, these studies. And the first printing took place in 1559. Or, excuse me, 1559. The second printing was 1570. And he spoke of the Protestant persecutions that were there in England. That portion called the Reformation. And again, you study that, and it's for us that we can identify. And so many times we say, well, I don't know, this book's kind of old now. (laughs) The Word of God is powerful and is sharper than a two-edged sword, we're told in the book of Hebrews. And sometimes man takes this book so light. Again, another mystery that's been revealed unto us. Remember we were sharing about the Ten Commandments? Well, they're not the Ten Commandments anymore. They're the Ten Suggestions. You see how man changes things, but God never changes. The Word of God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I love that. And so now Paul's been speaking about this mystery of the church. 
this divine call that was given to him, and he's been bringing forth this mystery, unveiling it right before uh, Gentiles and Jews. And now Paul comes to this third section, and we're going to finish it off here. Verses 14 through 21, excuse me. And it speaks about the appreciation of the mystery of the church. Now back in Ephesians chapter 1, we have Paul's first prayer. And here, in this conclusion of this chapter, we have Paul's second prayer for the church at Ephesus. Paul took time to pray for the church, as we should take time. I've always encouraged this. Maybe it's a good thought for you. When it comes time to pray, maybe you should get a hold of a journal. I did it years ago. And it's so beautiful to just get a journal and begin to pray. Begin with your family. I mean, is your spouse saved? Are your children saved? Is your household saved? And then take it down to mom, dad, grandma, grandpa. I mean, the list goes on. Cousins, family members. What about your neighborhood? What about your workplace? And you begin to write their names down in a journal. Go back when they do come to Saving Grace and circle their names and give God the glory. Paul spent time in prayer, and he's going to show us here in these last verses. Look at verse 14. For this reason, Paul's speaking about this mystery of the church that was given to the church at Ephesus and others. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so notice the encouragement of prayer. And I think it's important to see that, church. Paul says, I fall to my knees and I pray to the Father. You see, I can't take your burdens personally. You have trials. You have tribulations. Uh, you might have pains. You might have hardship. You might have financial burdens. I, I can't take them, but I can pray for you. You can't take my burdens, but you can pray for me. And so Paul's given us some beautiful insight here. And says, Paul says, when I go to my knees, when you go to your knees, prayer on your knees speaks of submission. It shows that place of submission, but let us understand this also. There are times because of uh, your physical status and maybe you cannot pray on your knees. So where do I find that place of submission? If you're taking notes back in Matthew chapter 6, verse 6. There in Matthew 6, Jesus is speaking about uh, instructions how to pray. Now for many years I declared to myself, well, this is the Our Father. So as long as I repeat the Our Father. But these were instructions how to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, holy is your name. That's how you begin prayer. But if you really want to read the high priestly prayer, it's found in John chapter 17. But listen to this. Speak about submission. In Matthew 6 verse 6, Jesus gives instructions here on prayer. He says, when you pray, go to your room, shut the door, do this in the secret place. That's your prayer closet. That's your submission room. Years ago, one of my pastor friends said, when he came to Saving Grace and, you know, he was, uh, he 
studying and following the, the, the precepts of prayer, and he would go out and pray. And he had this concept that, you know, the closer he got to God in heaven, the greater his prayer would be received. So the best he could do is he got on his roof. And he was out there, oh, Lord, and he was praying. Well, by this time, the neighborhood knows. The neighborhood's looking at him. And pretty soon, they're going to call the guys with the white coats, you know. The guy's gone, bonkers. But Jesus says, go into your room. Go into your secret place, close the door, and it's just between you and God. You and God. And what did Paul pray? But he prayed for the church at Ephesus. And he prayed for other churches. We're going to see that now. Look at verse 15. He says, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. So Paul's giving us insight. Man, I'm naming everybody that I can muster up in my heart, in my mind, of those at Ephesus. Now, as I went to verse 15, uh, your commentaries go back and forth. Is Paul just speaking about the church at Ephesus? Or is Paul speaking about the, the body of Christ? And how do you remember everybody? When you read the conclusion of the book of Romans, Paul knew a lot of people. There was a lot of people that he spoke of personally by name. And that's the beauty that we get to know who you are and you get to know who we are and we pray for each other. And we put those names there in the bulletin specifically for prayer. And you know some of their needs. And maybe you don't even know them personally. You don't even know them by face. But you can just lay your hands on that bulletin and say, Lord, this name right here, this person, Steve, that has this back injury, this second surgery, Lord, I pray for him. This is what Paul did at the church at Ephesus. <laughs> and Paul said, Lord, bless them. And he, I'm convinced he knew them by name. But he says here, look at verse 15, of whom the whole family in heaven and on earth. Do we have to pray for those in heaven? No, he was giving glory to God. Our Father who art in heaven, holy is your name. But then Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus. What about for the church at Rome, the Corinthians, the Galatians, the Ephesians, the Philippians, the Colossians, the Thessalonians, the church at of the Hebrews, Paul spent some time. Through the years, I've met a lot of people and know a lot of people. And maybe I don't remember their names, but many times their, their picture will just come to my mind. And I know God wants me to pray for them, whatever the situation might be. He says, whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named. Again, there you go back to, you know, writing a journal makes it easier. You got the names there already. And Paul continues with this prayer. Look at verse 16. That he would grant you. This is part of his prayer. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. To be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. Paul's saying here. I pray. That from God's glorious. Listen. Unlimited resources. That he will give you mighty inner strength uh, through his Holy Spirit. What a beautiful prayer. Paul prayed that the Holy Spirit would lead them, guide them, teach them into all truth that we mentioned earlier out of John chapter 16. Paul prayed that the Holy Spirit would give them power, that word dunamis, that dynamic power, that strength. 
You see, church, I can't do it on my strength. You can't do it on your strength. We need the power of God. We need the strength of God. Then he goes on to explain the prayer further. Look at verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in God's love. Paul's prayer again. I pray that Christ will dwell. The word dwell, that Christ would tabernacle and reside at home in your hearts as you trust in him. Again, there's the mystery of salvation. Paul says, know you not that you're the temple of the Holy Spirit, that he wants to tabernacle within us, that he wants to make his abode within us. Paul understood that position because he had come to the born-again experience. He says here about your roots, speaks of your stability, that it would go down deep into the soil, into the foundation of God's love. That's why we come to church. That's why we come to the Bible studies. That's why we read God's word. That that word would be embedded in my heart, embedded in your heart. That the foundation of God's love would, would, would take and would grow. We're to produce fruit, we're told, in Galatians chapter 5. And the fruit of the Spirit begins with love. I'm reminded of the two men and, and the two different destinies that took place there. In Psalm 1, it's a beautiful place. I want you to turn to it. we got a little bit of time. I just want to look at it. That place of the two men, the two destinies. In Psalm 1, he begins in verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law uh, does he meditate day and night. And here's the key. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he does, he shall prosper. And then it speaks of the ungodly. But man, we would be like that tree that's planted right there by the edge of the river. And as the roots take, it brings the nourishment from the water. The water is symbolic of the word of God. And that we would grow. We've spoken in time past when Paul speaks of the babes in Christ. When, when Peter says, hey, are you still partaking of the milk of the word? Man, you should be, you know, partaking of the meat now. And too many times Christians remain babies in Christ, and we should be growing in Christ. Again, there's another mystery uh, that's been revealed unto us. Let's go back uh, to our text. Look at verse 18. And then Paul said that you may be able uh, to comprehend with all the saints. Uh, look at this prayer again. What is the width, the length, the depth, and the height? And he's speaking about God's love. Paul's prayer again. Paul's heart again. I pray that you have the power to understand this church. As all God's people should understand. And he gives a description, listen, of the cross. How wide, how long, how high, and how deep is his love. You know, we look at the cross sometimes and, you know, we say, well, how much does God love me? I mean, just open up the cross. 
and just look at the cross straight up and down. And look what Jesus paid the price for me. The width, the length, the depth, the height of the cross. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on the cross, not man. The symbol of death. He died to give me life, uh, to give you life. This is Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus. Notice verse 19, uh, to know the love of Christ. Notice his prayer just keeps getting better in a sense. Uh, To know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled. I like that. With all the fullness of God. And so Paul's heart. May you experience the love of Christ. It is so great you will never fully understand it. That you be filled with the fullness of life and power. That comes from God. Now listen to some translations here. To be filled. To, com- to be complete. To be filled to overflowing. In Psalm 23. The psalmist says, my cup runneth over. And not only to be filled and to be complete, but the fullness that he speaks. The the word is the peace of God. So many times man's looking for peace. I want peace. And basically we're looking for peace in all the wrong places. All all I want is love and we're looking for love in, in the wrong places. And I find true love in Christ. And I find true peace. Not plastic. I find true peace in Christ. And notice that he says that I will be filled. And the full, I will be filled in the fullness of God. God wants to complete us, church. Then he comes to verses 20 and 21. The conclusion of this beautiful prayer. Now to him. Paul says, who is able to exceedingly and abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him, to him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. I like what Paul does here. He's giving the full glory to God. It's not Paul the apostle. But all the glory goes to God. Wasn't Peter, James, and John? They were all servants of the Lord. But all the glory goes to God. Wasn't all those, uh, you know, church, the saints that died there, uh, according to Fox's book of martyrs there, all the glory goes to God. It's nothing you've done. It's nothing I've done. All the glory goes to God. In verse 20, By the mighty power at work within us, he is able to accomplish infinitely more than we would ever dare to ask or hope. He's going to give us this power, this dunamis power, this dynamic power, this explosive power. And I like the word dunamis. It's translated in various ways, explosive, uh, dynamic, uh, but ability is another translation. God gives me the ability. He gives you the ability. He gives the church the ability. That same ability of the power of the Holy Spirit that was given in Acts chapter 2 is the same power, the same ability that's given today. All we have to do is ask. And I'm just convinced there are so many that, well, you know, I I come to saving grace. The Holy Spirit came into my life. Yes, that's true. 
But in Acts chapter 2, we see the P experience. We see the upon experience, the uh, outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the being filled with the Holy Spirit. I believe that's the third aspect of the Holy Spirit. But so many don't ask, don't look for. And then it declares in verse 21, to him be the glory again. The glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever, amen. And so Paul comes to the conclusion of the prayer. May he, the Lord Jesus Christ, may God Almighty be given glory in the church and Christ and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen. Let me leave you with this, church. No matter what we are in this Christian life, this Christian walk, no matter how big we are in Christianity or how small, insignificant I am in Christianity, all the glory goes to God. It should be a privilege to serve Him. Because it's an honor that he saved me, that he saved you. Paul said earlier that he was the least of the, of, of the less. He was the bottom of, you know, of the pile, if you may. Be careful when we think we've arrived. Be careful when we think we're somebody. And it's interesting about the life of Moses. For 40 years, Moses became somebody in Egypt. And then for the next 40 years, God didn't use him. But he sent, sent him to Midian. And there he tended stinky sheep for the next 40 years. And then for the last 40 years of Moses' life, God used him mightily. And don't think you're too old to be used of God. Moses was 80 when he started serving the Lord. I am but the least. I am but the, the chief of sinners. Years ago, and I want to conclude with this. Gail Irwin, great man of God, and he was sharing at a conference, and he goes, guys, we're nothing but dust. Some of you guys think you're big because your churches are huge. You're nothing. You're nothing but dust. I'm nothing but dust. And, you know, you're kind of bummed out. He's just calling you dirt right now, you know? And he says, but you know what? God saved that dust. God saved that dust. Now, uh, in my case, I'm more dust than you guys are. But God saved this dust. God saved you. And if he has not saved you, then you need to come to that place of saving grace. But notice all the mysteries that have been unveiled to you. Revealed to you now by the power of the Holy Spirit. Oh, that we would grow in Christ. And notice Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus. And I believe all the other churches. That the Holy Spirit would just get a hold of us. And move upon our hearts.